Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the latest Man on the Post European football podcast. We are well aware that it's an international break this this week. And this evening we are going to discuss very, very interesting and important, memorable international football matches through the years. Uh, My partner in crime, Scott Munro. Scott, good evening. How are you? Good evening. Not too bad. Just waiting for quarter to eight so I can watch Scotland versus Israel. As my dad is Scottish, I drawn to that side of the allegiance so I'm just hoping for a win and to get through to the latter stages of the Nations League and probably probably sorry and hopefully to Euro 2020 who knows the last tournament was back in 1998 so uh, it's a long way away uh, a long way away now but Scott but Scott and I have picked a few we've picked three um, international matches that have really etched on the memory haven't we Scott Yes, yes. And uh, we are three, three classics in my eyes. Yeah, and all all of them are World Cup matches. Obviously, we're aware that this is more tempering towards the Euros this week in a, in a new international uh, jacket, if you like. But we are going to start with 1998 and the Netherlands against Argentina in Marseille, and quite simply, one of the greatest World Cup goals ever scored. Uh, scored by the greatest player my club has ever known and the greatest player that I've ever seen wear a red and white shirt in Dennis Bergkamp Uh, following a 60 yard pass from Frank de Boer cushions the ball as if it's just been lobbed to him from about 5 yards Uh, obviously still in movement still in flight and having the um, audacity to just take his time and absolutely thrash that ball past Carlos Roa, who was absolutely didn't have a cat in hell's chance of saving that um, saving that goal. Uh, the commentary for that goal, you can find it on YouTube. The Dutch commentary is unbelievably hyper, but also has its charm. But for me, I watched that game live and it raised me off my sofa, or just to say my sofa in there. In, uh, I was living with my mother at the time as I was only a very young boy. But um, it absolutely got me off my sofa because it was to place that ball in that part of the goal at that stage of the game was nothing short of incredible and also to go away and, and celebrate with your teammates and have that whole stand of the Stade Velodrome in Marseille decked out in orange and it was just a, a phenomenal, phenomenal goal and uh, what was, what's your memories of that game, Scott? Um, my memories was that I was only so what, I was 11 and all I remember from 98 World Cup is probably the vitriol and hatedness that a certain David Beckham got after that England-Argentina game and 
Argentina got through that game and then faced Holland in the quarterfinals. Yeah. And all I remember from this game is how hot it was in yeah. Marseille and that goal and Barry Davis's excellent BBC commentary on the game and just how far this Holland side could go, especially with the strike pairing yeah. of Cliver and Bergkamp. Yeah. And, and, and a Dutch squad that had a real togetherness, you know, you had Overmars, you had the De Boer brothers, you had uh, Van der Sar, you had um, also, uh, I believe, uh, Michael Reisiger as well was uh, was um, was in, was involved and also um, the likes of Van Hooydonk also putting in a shift when needed. It was a real togetherness that Chris Hiddink created and they came very, very close. It's one of the great best Dutch squads ever to be assembled but um, yeah it was just a tremendous uh, a tremendous winning goal a, tre- a tremendous match up of, of two absolute, absolutely huge nations because Can I just we- say on, on the goal um, one of my favourite defenders who was playing in that game who had an absolute stellar career in Spain for Valencia was Roberto Ayala and Bergkamp just made mincemeat of him yeah. with the lovely control yeah. and the finish past Carlos Roja just absolutely wonderful absolutely in, indeed as well and, and it was a real a, a tense game as well you know with uh, Ariel Ortega's um, he was popping up and making a nuisance of himself and, 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 and Argentina could have very well won that game as well and, uh, and um, didn't Arthur Newman get sent off in this game? Yeah, he had a he had a career for Rangers, and he um, yeah. he, he had his moments. I mean, he was looked <laughs> upon as a quite placid uh, player, but he could uh, he could turn it on when it needed to be turned on. Turn he could turn the screw when it needed to be turned on. And um, yeah, it was just a real a fantastic squad. And uh, I mean, you think of the talent on that uh, on that. Uh, on that field for that match, you know, you got like an Ayala, an Ortega, a Simeone, a Batistuta, Bergkamp. Um, it's just a who's who of world football at the time, and they're both fighting it out tooth and nail to reach a World Cup semi-final. Only a semi-final, I might add, but still, yeah. uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful game. And uh, yeah, well, that's kicked off our our first um, our first look back to the major international games that we remember. So number two, in my eyes, uh, was a tournament in Germany 12 years ago. So it's World Cup 2006. And it's also another semi-final, which we're talking about. This time it was in the Westfalen Stadium in Dortmund. And it was Germany versus Italy. And one of the most iconic moments would be Fabio Grosso's uh, extra time goal to put Italy one up just for the mere celebration it was um, Marco Tardelli-esque if you would agree with me James it was wasn't he shouting no credo no credo no credo meaning I don't believe it I don't believe it I don't believe it (laughs) I did not know that but all I remember what I remember from that goal is the wonderful wonderful reverse pass from the the magician in my eyes Andrea Pirlo just cut cut the defence and what a finish by Fabio Grosso and the second goal was was not too shabby either which was uh, Paolo Cannavaro uh, with where he was one of the, actually the player of the tournament in that tournament and it sealed a, a move to Real Madrid for him 
um, winning two wonderful headers and an excellent counter-attack from um, uh, Alberto Gilardino, who then fed the ball to Alexander. Alessandro Del Piero and he just made no mistake from close range and then you could just feel Italy just uh, the sense of nerves just etched away and then you could see that they wanted to uh, to get to the World Cup final and put all away the Caltropoli scandal which was uh, which was abrupt in back home yeah for me Fabian Fabio Grosso for me was defined of that tournament Scott you know I didn't really know much about him Going into the tournament, and uh, he was just uh, tremendous to be so, to be so measured and to be so assured. It was uh, it was just uh, tremendous, you know. And that celebration, iconic as it was, an extremely iconic uh, celebration, and also to have the 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 nerves of steel to take a World Cup winning penalty and not just put it in the back of the net, but rifle it in the top corner. Sending Bartos the wrong way. As yeah, well. it just absolutely shouldered it and absolutely tremendous and a, a real, real, real fantastic penalty. And for me, I don't know about you being an Italian football fan, but for me, it, Italy were odds on to win that tournament. I remember I, I'd been living and working in the Netherlands at the time for uh, for about a year, year about, about a year, coming up to a year and a half. And obviously, it's your first major tournament living in another country, and you're all excited, and you try to give your um, try to give your opinion and different things. And I remember telling everybody at my work, Italy's going to win the World Cup, but I didn't put a bet on it because I, I didn't really know that you could bet in this country. Obviously, I know now, listeners, but <laughs> I, I didn't know back then. And um, I was telling everybody, I said. Um, I said Italy are going to win it, and I gave the example of the the wonderful balanced midfield, you know, with Totti and Camerlanesi and and, and fantastic balance and Pirlo and and tr- amazing width as well and a killer in Del Piero. And when they won it, everybody at work said, "How much did you win? How much did you win?" I said, "I didn't put any money on it." But it re- it remains the uh, obviously I I finally um settled that ghost when I backed France to win the previous World Cup back in uh, Russia this summer but um, yeah for me it was so evident that Italy were going to win that tournament also coupled with the guile of uh, of Marcello Lippi you know to have so much guile and, and, and so much experience for, for me for them to win their fourth um, World Cup wasn't a surprise at all for you as an Italian fan what do you think about that? Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, the squad that they had was was, at, was probably one of the best squads they've had for a good fifteen twenty years. Just the balance of it. They got they had two good strikers in Luca Toni and Alberto Gelardino, mm. both coming off good forms in Serie A. Um, I think Luca Toni was at Palermo or Fiorentina, mm-hmm. and Gelardino may have just sealed a move to AC Milan. And then you had the Totti Del Piero balance. Um, Simone Perotta just come off a very good season with Roma. Uh, Mario Camoranesi, uh, Juventus, uh, they won the title that season, but it got stripped evidently due to due to uh, Caltropoli. But yeah, um, it was just such a good team. And then you had a very young Daniele De Rossi who stupidly got him sent off himself sent off against the USA, and he came back into the into the squad for the final. But yeah, um, I don't think Italy have matched the heights ever since. Um, Lippi, Lippi came back in 2010 at the World Cup, and it, it didn't work. 
and then they've gone through Conte, um, now Roberto Mancini. I'm just trying to think who. Um, uh, Ventura. Ventura, Parandelli, and it hasn't worked since. And I just think that was probably that was the golden age for Italian national team football. And they've been striving for it ever since. Yeah, I'd like to tell the listeners about a story that I have about uh, Alberto Ciladino. It's about him scoring one of the greatest goals I've ever seen live, ever. I went to the UEFA Cup tie in 2009 between Ajax and Fiorentina in Amsterdam, upon which Ajax won through in their own stadium. And you can look on YouTube and search for Ciladino's goal against Ajax. I won't spoil it for the listeners, but it truly is one of the greatest goals I've ever seen live. Yes, in terms of control, there's a hint of a potential handball, but that doesn't take away from the from the way that he re- receives that ball and ends up putting it in the back of the net. It really is a thing of beauty. So I um, advise listeners to check on YouTube. Giladino um, against Ajax in 2009 and check it out and let us know what you think. Maybe I'm a, I'm a terrible recogniser of, of goals and people are going to say, well, what you're playing at, that was, a, that, that was an awful goal. But uh, it's just my honest opinion. But um, we're now going to move on to our third match. And I think this one for, lives in the memory for such so many reasons, Scott. Primarily due to the hour that it kicked off. The pre- the prestige involved, and one of the greatest goals um, ever scored. Ever scored. I think yeah. we're gonna. I think we're gonna give it all away to the listeners now. I think we've given them enough clues. But just to give them a final clue, I'm going to say the following: He meant it. Yes, that's Ronaldinho against England for Brazil in the 2002 <laughs> World Cup. Uh, what's your opinions about this wonderful, uh, tremendous European uh, international match, Scott? I remember it because I was at work experience uh, 2002 so I was 15 so I was coming to the end of my final year at secondary school and um, I was doing two weeks of work experience uh, with my dad and they made us come in a little bit later because the game kicked off at half past seven UK time yeah. in the morning because uh, if anyone's been living under a rock the 2002 World Cup was based in South Korea and Japan and uh, the time zones were a, a little bit off for us people in the UK um, I remember Michael Owen absolutely tormenting Lucio for yeah. England's goal and Rivaldo, Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, excellent work for Brazil's first goal. And then Ronaldinho just pot shot, but did he mean it? Did he not mean it? He just... meant it. Look at <laughs> look at the way his body is shaped when he's kicking that ball. Anyone that tells me he didn't mean it and it was a fluke, you obviously don't understand the ethics of kicking a ball into the back of the net. And also as well, Scott, it's well documented that Gilberto, Seaman's teammate at Arsenal, told Ronaldinho, if you look if you look at dead ball situations, he will often come off his line. So when you put together an intelligent Gilberto, an intelligent Ronaldinho, Ronaldinho has the audacity to put that ball in the back of the net from there. And for me obviously I can understand people going oh we didn't mean it it was a fluke blah 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 if this would have happened against Brazil Turkey or Brazil Germany or Brazil anybody else 
England fans wouldn't have the same level of sour grapes that they have, but because it knocked them out of a World Cup, they're a little bit clouded about that. For me, when you study his body language when he's approaching to kick that ball and how he follows through, he knew exactly what he was doing. And for me, it goes down as one of the greatest World Cup goals ever scored. Yeah, I I agree now, but as a 14-year-old lad, 15-year-old lad in 2002, I was like, did he mean it? But then seeing the goal so many times on like British TV, YouTube, you can see, as James says, he did mean it. You can see by his body shape is the way he hit the ball and it was just a wonderful goal. And then he stupidly gets himself sent off. Yeah, but also the, the adolescence of youth, you've got to remember how young he still was. Yeah. And he I... was... He was he was living up in uh, in Paris and, and, you know, coming from, I think, Gremio. And, and to think, going into that World Cup, Scott, how Brazil were, in some quarters, a pale sh- shade of yellow where people wasn't really fancying them. But if you look at even their goalkeeper, Javier Maricos at the time, a tremendous goalkeeper. His move to Arsenal fell through shortly afterwards, much to our dismay, but... Um, I think if we'd have got him, I think things would have changed. <laughs> I think things would have changed. I think 2002-2003 would have been an excellent season. Where, season yeah. yeah, we where we might have actually retained the title, but that's 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 by the by. But if you mean that team of Marcos, Lucio, Roberto Carlos, Gilberto, and and that front three, coupled with a a, a sensible Scolari, I, I think Scolari in 2014. You know, I've, I've, I think he went on a bit too much and, and let the whole ethos of a, of a Brazilian World Cup cloud his judgment. Yeah, it but, got to him. Yeah, but in 2002, it didn't get to him. No, he no, uh, was a smarter coach back then. Yeah, and but I just think as well, that's the last, I say great, great Brazil side. <laughs> I think it is. I mean, I was, um, the World Cup last summer, I, I, I cut over this summer just gone, that, Chichi didn't have the the guile and the balls to drop Neymar in that um in that quarter final and let him play. And obviously I mean it's just my opinion. I believe if Neymar had not have played against Belgium, Brazil would have won that game. You bring him back for the semi final with his head actually clear in terms of I'm not a little child, I've got to I've got to um be a man up and and, and, and help this nation to win a World Cup. And I, I just think Chichi's judgment for that, for me, that that still still clouds it a little bit, in my opinion. I agree because Neymar sometimes he can act like a, a petulant little child, but sometimes on the pitch he's a, a coming to be a bit of a mercurial genius. Yeah, indeed. But I think in the terms of Chichi, I think I think Tim Vickery said it best. Uh, Chichi is now um, Brazil host the. Um, host the Copa America I believe for next uh, I think it's next, next summer, summer. and yeah. should they not win it Chi Chi will receive his marching orders which I think is only fair because yeah. I because I believe he's the first Brazilian coach since 1978 you know Coutinho I believe to uh, to keep his job having not won a World Cup uh, wow. and I, I so I think that's. I think he's only the second coach to have done that, so I think he's very lucky. But um, yeah, that was a, an absolutely tremendous Brazil side, and um, yeah, we are now going to switch to uh, speaking about memorable World Cup matches. 
oh, we, we're now going to elaborate in terms of players which have caught our eye through international tournaments, through European Championships or World Cups. Are there any particular players that stay true to your heart and have got a nice, uh, uh, gives you a nice warm glow, Scott, when you think about their appearance, their performances at international level? Uh, so I'll go back to World Cup 2006, uh, Argentinian number 10, not him, but um, he was playing for Villarreal and um, it's Juan Roman Raquel May. Um, he was absolutely wonderful to watch during that World Cup and um, Peckerman who was in charge of that World yeah. Cup. Um, I think he made a mistake taking him off in the quarterfinal and evidently they lost on penalties to Germany and it, it, it didn't really happen for for them later on in 2010 under Maradona but that was probably the the last time we saw Rakami on a, a global stage because after that he got he didn't fell out of favour with Villarreal and then he went to, back to Boca and didn't really play for the national side but that tournament he lit it up wonderful player very easy on the eye elegant could uh, spot a pass three times ahead of anyone else just just a magician to watch yeah he said he had a tremendous career as well and I remember the uh, VLAL team that almost knocked Arsenal out at the semi-final stage in 2006 that he was a huge part of that and um I actually thought in 2006 that Argentina were going to be ready and I think with, with Perkman and I think he invested heavily in the Argentinian youth and he was heavily influenced, uh, heavily influential in the Argentinian youth setup. and I think I really thought that with his experience that could have held the key to them winning their first World Cup since 1986 but unfortunately it wasn't to be. No, they got uh, Jens Lehmann was in goal for Germany and they uh, missed out on penalties. But if anyone gets a chance, just YouTube, um, I think it was Argentina's second game of the tournament in Gelsenkirchen, um, where they faced Serbia. Well, actually, it was Yugoslavia, now Serbia, and they won 6 0. There's a particular goal, um, I think it's 48 passes for yes. Esteban Cambiaso's goal. Yeah, with hair. With hair, yeah, and he was at Real Madrid at the time. No, he wasn't. No, he was at Inter Milan. Apologies. Yeah. Um, but if anyone gets that, just search it on YouTube. It's one of the best World Cup goals, and Rakami was a part of that. And I think you might see a young Leo Messi in in that game as well. Yeah, he. Uh, I think he had a bit of afters in that penalty shootout against Germany in 2006. I think he had a, a bit of afters in terms of kicking and shouting and uh, and having a bit of uh, a bit of a tasty session with some of the German players and uh, having to be calmed down. I think. Yeah, well, I remember. I think I remember vividly the game was on ITV and um, Lehmann celebrated very vividly. And yeah, as you said, it just um, it may have kicked off, and it's not. Unlike Argentinian players to get a bit wound up after the final whistle, is it? No, but I mean, uh, I mean, the, the frustration of them. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, through the World Cup after World Cup after World Cup, and I, I maintain as well. I mean, the tide is turning for them now, in terms of uh, appointing a, a, a good manager. I think Lionel Leo, Scaloni is still in caretaker yes, charge, yeah. but if you think back to the last great manager they had in Alex Sabella who was uh, manager of Estudiantes, 
Um, it's no fluke, it's no fluke that he was in charge when they got to a World Cup final, and if he if his play if the players that he'd have picked had put their chances away, Germany would have Germany would have had no chance of winning that World Cup, and Argentina would have been out out of sight by half time. And I, I, yeah, I mean that that was a chance. I mean that was a glaring miss, and I think I mean for me it's just my personal opinion. I get quite annoyed when people say, oh, Argentina 2014, Messi, Messi, Messi. For me, it was Alejandro Sabella that got Argentina to that World Cup final, not Lionel Messi. Messi was a shadow in yeah. that tournament. Yeah. Um, in that, after that, they lost two Copa Americas yeah. in a row yeah. to Chile. Yeah. And uh, just just goes to show how difficult it is to get over the line. One team that has eventually in recent years managed to get over the line in a European Championship setting uh, is Portugal and I'm now going to speak about my admiration for one Portuguese player who I think is still in some quarters underrated and I think that's absolutely criminal and that is uh, Rui Costa Uh, you will know he had a tremendous career at uh, Fiorentina and Milan and, and went back to Benfica and scored Tremendous goals. I mean, there's a there's a there's a, a YouTube tribute video of him scoring a a half volley against I think it's um, FC Porto in the Old Clasico, and it's just a sumptuous half volley. You couldn't hit it any sweeter. You could try a hundred times, you wouldn't catch it. But for me, his performance against England in the 2004 European Championship and the way he basically swatted Phil Neville as if he was a fly. And you know yourself, Rui Costa is not the most physically uh, imposing person, but to just but just to swap Phil Neville as if a fly has come and and tapped him on the face, and then put the most sumptuous finish on the side of the bar. It was absolutely. I mean, I was disappointed that he he managed to uh, he managed to. I think it was the equaliser, I believe. But it was, or was it the two-one? I'm not entirely sure. Two-one. Yeah, the two-one. It was Lampard. Lampard was the equaliser. Yeah. yeah. The, but even though I was disappointed with that two-one, it was still a, a truly amazing, amazing goal. And I think when you look back to the career he's had, uh, phenomenal, really. To go back to start at Benfica. I mean, Arsenal played in the European Cup in 1991, and we lost to Benfica. And um, you had a very, very young Rui Costa uh, doing nutmegs on the likes of Steve Bold, Tony Adams. He's taking the mick out of him, really. And I remember watching that as a young kid thinking, who's that player there? And then obviously, you know, you as the years roll, roll on, you don't really know. But then when you get into it, you realise that that was a very, very young player who went on to become... In, he's in the same echelon as Figo and Ronaldo in terms of one of the greatest Portuguese players ever. And um, he had a probably one of the best partnerships in European football with Gabriel Batistuta yeah. at Fiorentina. Yeah, it was uh, just. But I think he, I think he really loved Florence as well. I mean, you that iconic purple shirt with Nintendo on it, you know, and. Uh, oh. What and, shirt that was. <laughs> but I think and and playing in Artemio Franchi and I think he was they were just having so much fun it was just uh, was just absolutely unreal and uh, yeah so they're the first two of our of our names of uh, players is there another player that caught your eye at international level Scott? Um, I think 
Um, yeah, Euro 28, uh, 2008, <laughs> um, Spain won the Euros, and for me, Davavia was probably yeah. the best striker of the tournament, and um, he, he had a wonderful partnership with Fernando Torres. I know we were talking off-pod about the final being not the best final because Spain had the game one at half-time and closed up sharp. He didn't play in the final because he picked up an injury against Russia. So, yeah, um, he was just a joy to watch. Uh, the first couple of games of the tournament, he scored goals for fun. I think he ended up with five or six goals for that tournament. Mm-hmm. And that made him a star in my eyes because before that, he was very well talked up in Spain. Yeah. Um, I had the chance to watch him play for for Sporting Gijón mm-hmm. against Swindon in the 2002 friendly and I didn't go I gave up the chance and what happened he scored in a 2-2 game at the city ground at a uh, county ground oh, yeah, okay. county ground why do I keep saying yeah. city ground sorry Forest <laughs> fans sorry Swindon fans do excuse my <laughs> ignorance um, yeah, and I, I just like, oh, no, Swindon's playing a, a, a mean and this pre-season friendly, I won't go. And it's sporting heat on. So Davivia scored, and then he, he got moved to Real Zaragoza, then Valencia, then Barcelona, and then he's had a, a wonderful career. Yeah. And one, one of the best strikers in European football. Yeah, he made everything look so simple, didn't he? Just, yes. You know, just p- putting goals away w- was was never really a chore for him. It was just, uh, as you say, still going strong in um, in New MLS. York in the MLS. Yeah. And I I remember seeing him play and scoring when I went to Washington to watch. I went to, went on holiday first and foremost, but I went to watch DC United against New York City. New York City, which had a PLO and um, David Villa starting for them, and I think it only cost me the princely sum of fifteen dollars, which is quite nice. That's very cheap for American sports. Yeah, I was very very pleased. Um, we are going to wrap up our Europe, our international man on the post um, podcast tonight by me naming my second player, and it's a player you'll know that I hold in very high esteem, also a world champion along with David Villa, but obviously a, a different World Cup, and that's Philip Lahm. I know I know he's only recently retired, Scott, but I mean, the, to play all your career for, for one club, having only went out on loan to Stuttgart and played a handful of games, you know, to show such leadership qualities uh, for Germany to win the World Cup in 2014, you know, a tremendous captain. I remember going to the Emirates to watch um, Arsenal play Bayern Munich in 2013 and I remember watching him for five minutes off the ball I wasn't watching what was going on with the ball I was watching him and it was like uh, PlayStation football Scott you know in terms of the the, run, the runs being made timing of the runs and the pace of the runs you think you think to yourself you're talking about speed or how to run as a professional footballer and you you watch where his hands are pointing to what he's looking at and where he's going and it's just uh, although I was very disappointed with the result it was just a sight to behold really and I think um, you know if I'm if you're talking about best defenders I've ever seen uh, he would definitely he, he's up there I think he's the best yeah. I mean Khodin had a tremendous performance against Arsenal in, in April in 2000 and um, 
in two, April in the Europa League in 2018 this season in the first leg in London. But uh, Philip Lahm was just uh, was just something out of this world, absolutely extraordinary. Glass, where, where was he playing? Was he playing right back? He was, and it was just, it was yeah. just. I mean, I was, I had a ticket behind the goal, right at the front, and I'm just sitting and I, I'm, I'm watching, and, and you know, you know yourself through watching football through the years, you, you go from watching only where the ball's going to maybe watch off the ball and all the different things, but in the case of Philip Lam, it's just. Uh, just watching him. Just yeah, I spent I deliberately spent five minutes just watching him because I wanted you know, I mean obviously I go to support my team, but when certain players are playing, you've got to take the opportunity to to have a look and see how they do things differently to the rest, and uh, that really really opened my eyes. Yeah, what a player it was, and um, in the latter stages of his career, Pep made him a defensive midfielder. Yeah, but I find that a bit Frankenstein. Oh, do you? Yeah, because I'm I'm sorry if you're the be- if you're the greatest right back, I think one of, of your generation, and uh, some might even say the greatest professional of your pre- uh, yes, professoration. Uh, don't go messing around with nature. Don't try to put a a dog's head on a human body and all that rubbish. Just just leave things as they are. But I suppose some people want to reinvent the wheel. And it's no, it's no. Um, I don't think he enjoyed playing that position personally. I mean, I I, I haven't interviewed Philip Lam yet. I don't know if I ever will. I have to learn German <laughs> first, I think. But I don't really think he enjoyed playing in that position, to be honest. But that's just that's just my personal opinion. But but what a player he was! Uh, just a best, tremendous his, player. Yeah. And the the only the only gripe I have, or I say gripe, Scott. He would, he could have gone to any team in the world, and and I would love I would have loved to have seen him in a different environment just to see if he was. I mean, we we know how good he is, but it would have been wonderful to see a player like that in a different environment, even if it was just for one season. I mean, to give you an example, Raúl left Real Madrid and everyone thought he was finished. He went to Schalke and was one of the best players in the Bundesliga the season that he played there so it just goes to show how players can adapt very quickly with their intelligence and still make a very good impression oh yeah Kungri and Raul left Real Madrid where he was a superstar but he got shipped out and went to Schalke and had a brilliant two years he, there. he was tremendous I think he was selected in, in numerous top teams and numerous awards and uh, plaudits uh, that concludes our latest Man on the Post European podcast which had a distinct international feel this week but we like to think we can offer lots of different things there's many a chink to our armour uh, Scott would you like to tell the listeners how they can contact you on Twitter uh, yeah, you can follow me uh, at uh, Scott underscore Monroe Scott is with one T named after Scotland and Monroe is M-U-N-R-O-E yeah, very very interesting thanks for the clarity on that I'm sure people <laughs> have been looking for the double T um, listeners don't, can also follow me the yeah they've been looking I think listeners can also follow me on at James Rowe and now we've uh, haven't had many questions the last couple of weeks please don't be shy listeners always try to forward your questions in however vague or silly you might think they are we'd like to point you in the direction of the Man on the Post um, podcast network where we have the likes of unusual efforts pieces of me and Man on the Post extra time there really is something for everybody we'd like to thank you for joining us on this international edition of the Man on the Post European podcast but as I say there's many a string to our bow and we look forward to you joining us next time and always remember to keep your man on the post ciao ciao